Okay, Romans chapter 1, verse 1, that says this. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Well, do keep uh, that passage uh, open because we're going to be looking at uh, that together. And a few things to say as we begin. There is an outline of where we're going. Um, a printed version looks a bit like that. Uh, and if you're a regular, you'd have had that emailed out. But there's also, it's attached to the description box on the, um, the YouTube uh, page. So you can uh, download that. Um, I think one of the obvious ways of using it is to make notes. So uh, many people find it helpful to concentrate, to make notes as you go through, and also something you can look back over um, this coming week and reflect on. Then also to say that at the end of the message, there will be an opportunity to ask any questions or comments about what I've said or a question from a text or explore an implication. Um, we'll use a live chat for that. And when we get there, um, I can tell you how that will work. But say that now so as we're going through you can make a note of anything you'd like to ask about or make a comment on well let me pray and then we will um we'll look at this um these opening verses together let's pray heavenly father we thank you that you are the god who is truthful and good and rightly sovereign over us we thank you for the privilege of being your people who bear your name and so we pray please as we uh, listen and think about your word that we would vindicate who you are that we would uh, listen 
uh, to what you have to say, that we would trust in the goodness of these truths and that we would be obedient to your commands. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In reading uh, Romans 1 to 17, you know, in reading such a text as that, it is, it is hard for the eye not to be drawn to the magnificent verses in Romans uh, chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. I mean, they speak of such confidence in the gospel, a confidence that we would want to share in. They talk about how the gospel is the power of God for salvation, that such a salvation is available to all who believe, that it concerns the righteousness of God, not only that his justice is finally vindicated, but that those he saves, he makes righteous. And that this salvation is received by faith. It comes as a gift from God. I mean, these really are two magnificent verses which introduce many of the themes that will be unpacked throughout the letter. But what about verses 1 to 15? Are we to think of those as, you know, the kind of introductory verses that can be skipped? Should I just focus on verses 16 and 17? Although they aren't really unpacked here. But if I did, what then are we to make of the beginning of verse 16? Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now for Paul to say that he is not ashamed of the gospel implies that people might have thought that he was ashamed. You don't have to defend yourself if you've not been attacked. Why might someone think Paul was ashamed of the gospel? Now notice here that we're not talking about why we might be ashamed of the gospel. This is Paul the Apostle. And if you know anything about Paul, he was willing to put up with just about anything except the sacrifice of the gospel. You know, in the letter to the Philippians, though there are people proclaiming the gospel with a bad attitude, Paul nevertheless rejoices because the gospel is being proclaimed. Whereas in the letter to the Galatians, for those who have altered the gospel, let them be an anathema says Paul. We might think that Paul was the last person to be ashamed of the gospel, yet here he seems to be having to make something of a defence. Why might that be? It has to do with why Paul has not yet been to Rome. It's what Paul speaks about in verses 8 to 15. Whilst Paul begins by telling his readers how he thanks God for them, the subject with which he addresses them is his visit to Rome. He is at pains to point out to them that his intention is to visit Rome, and to visit them. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's his unceasing prayer, verse 10. Uh, so chapter 1 verse 10, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will 
I might now at last succeed in coming to you. It's in his longing to see them. Verse 11. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. His intention to visit them is something that he wants them to be in no doubt about. Verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Now Paul is at pains to point out that the reason that he has not yet visited them in Rome is not because he hasn't wanted to, but because he's not been able to. I'm not avoiding Rome, says Paul. But why is this visit such a big deal? I mean, surely there's lots of places that Paul has not visited. Why is his visit to Rome so important? Why is it that his lack of visit to Rome, that which calls into question Paul's confidence in the gospel? What is the link between Paul not being to Rome and people thinking that he is ashamed of the gospel? The answer lies in verse 14. Chapter 1, verse 14. I am under obligation both to the Jew and also to the Greek. Oh no, it doesn't say that, does it? Chapter 1, verse 14. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. The way that the Bible divided the ancient world was between Jews and Gentiles. It's a division that Paul uses in verse 16, one that Paul will use throughout his letter. It is the division that's used extensively in the New Testament. In fact, you can't really make sense of the Bible without coming to grips with this distinction and its importance. But that's not the distinction that's been made in verse 14. Here, the distinction is made between Greeks and barbarians. Well, what are we to make of that? Well, a clue is in what follows. So have a look again, chapter 1, verse 14. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. There's a parallelism going on here. The phrase, both to Greeks and to barbarians, parallels the phrase, both to the wise and to the foolish. So that Greeks matches up with the wise and barbarians matches up with the foolish. Paul is making reference here to how the world divided the ancient world. 
there were the Greeks, who were considered wise, and there's the rest, the barbarians, who were considered foolish. The Greeks and the barbarians was the way that the ancient world divided things. Now, this was the time when Greek culture was considered the height of uh, sophistication and intellect and thought, of which Rome was the capital. That is to say that Rome was the capital of Greek wisdom. And therefore it is particularly significant that Paul has not been there yet. Is Paul avoiding Rome because he is unsure whether the gospel will stand up under its wisdom? See, it's not just that Paul hasn't been to Rome, it's the significance of Rome that makes the point. Okay, at this point, in this way, we can begin to follow their train of thinking. Rome is the capital of Greek wisdom. Paul has yet to come to Rome. Is he avoiding it? Is it because he's ashamed of the gospel? Now, this is interesting for us because if Rome is to be avoided, then maybe there will be places for us to avoid with the gospel. I mean, in many ways, Western thought today would seek to ridicule the gospel as archaic, intolerant, stupid. Western thought would say that there's no place for the gospel in modern society. I mean, is there a place for Christianity in the West anymore? Well, close to home, what about, say, Bradford University? We have a number of students at Trinity who are currently studying at the university. Is the university off limits? The bowl means be a Christian in your spare time, but don't, don't expect to bring it into the, the domain of university thought and life. I mean, if Paul is avoiding Rome, is that not an implication? Now we know that Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. He says as much. He doesn't say, you got me, I have been avoiding Rome, I think the gospel was just going to be an embarrassment there. Rather, he says in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. If you look back to verse 14, I am under obligation, says Paul, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. But why? Well, let's go back to verses 1 to 7 that we haven't looked at yet. Now, in many ways, it has the form of a typical letter. So if you look, chapter 1, verse 1, from Paul, chapter 1, verse 7, to those in Rome. 
yet there is a bit more there, isn't there? The crux of it is how Paul locates himself. You know, it is from Paul, but it, it's that bit that he expands. It's all about how Paul locates himself. How does he orientate himself? And the, the axis that he uses is not geographical location, but location in redemptive history. He orientates himself around the gospel, the gospel about the Son, the gospel that was promised and the gospel that has now arrived. There is a fulfilment. The Son has come. Notice that the Son is put, verse 3, in terms of a descendant of David, leading us to understand that he is the promised Messiah. But that now, verse 4, this Messiah has been installed. He's been enthroned as king. God's king is now in place. That's the significance of the resurrection. That God has now enthroned his king. Now we know from the promises that the scope of the king's rule is the whole world. I mean this king is no less than the second Adam who has come to restore the created order. And Paul orientates himself as one who has been called by this enthroned king to be a herald of his gospel to the nations. Now don't be worried at this point. We often think um, gospel uh, Jesus' death for sin. But there's no mention of that here. That, that will come, Romans 3. But at this point, we're to be thinking in terms of the gospel as a proclamation or an announcement. It was uh, Broughton Knox, I think, who helpfully pointed out that this announcement could bring good news or bad news, depending on what side of the fence you're on. This gospel, this announcement, is put in terms of the enthronement of God's king. And the scope of his rule is universal. Whether it's good news or bad news depends somewhat on how you orientate yourself to this king. The point here then is that Paul is a servant to this king, an apostle and therefore the scope of his ministry is the whole world. Rome is not off limits. Rome's not out of bounds, far from it. So that whilst he has been prevented thus far from going there, he is obligated to preach the gospel there. It's all tied to the proclamation that Jesus is king and his kingdom has come. Well, we began by observing that whilst verses 16 and 17 are indeed magnificent verses in which to begin this letter, they do presuppose that Paul may well have been, that people may well have thought that Paul was ashamed of the gospel. 
by looking at verses 1 to 15, we've seen on the one hand why that might be. That Paul's absence from Rome is because he is avoiding it precisely because it's the centre of Greek thought and sophistication and he's embarrassed. On the other hand, we've seen that this is not the case. The reason why Paul has not been to Rome yet is because he's been prevented from going despite his longing to be there. Rather than be ashamed of the gospel, he is obligated to preach the gospel there precisely because the gospel announces that God's king is now enthroned and the remit of his rule includes all the nations of the world, including those in Rome. In many ways, this explains Paul's language of power in verse 16. So chapter 1, verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. At the end of the day, Paul does not unpack Greek wisdom. You know, so this is why the gospel is um, better, more powerful than the wisdom of the day. I mean, his argument doesn't actually rely on knowledge of Greek wisdom. It relies on the fact of what God is doing in the world. This is where the power is, because this is what God is doing. When you know God's plan for the world, you know where the power is. And we're talking nothing less than the power of God to restore his creation. Now we've yet to witness that power when God restores the, the whole cosmos in a new heaven and a new earth when Christ returns. But we have witnessed the power of God in the lives of believers. You know, to take someone who is hostile to God's king so that they will willingly submit to him and become his servant and seek the advance of his kingdom and the glory of his name, that's the miracle. That's where the power is. To change somebody whose final reference point is themselves to someone whose final reference point is God and his king requires power. The power of God for salvation. Well, let me pray and then I'll open it up to any questions or comments you might have. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great confidence that your Apostle Paul has in your gospel. We thank you he was not ashamed of the gospel in the face of the wisdom of the day, uh, of the Greek sophistication 
and thought of which Rome was the capital. That despite uh, not being able to go to Rome, that he was not ashamed. And we thank you how that is tied to his understanding of what the gospel is, that concerns no less than the king whom you have promised and that we've anticipated since the very beginning of the Bible, the very beginning of your creation, has now come and through resurrection power has been installed and enthroned as your king, uh, which Paul plays uh, a very important part in that plan as that he is a herald of that enthronement to the nations of the world. We thank you for how comprehensive his rule is, that we're talking nothing less than the instalment of a second Adam, and therefore we understand not only Paul's confidence, but his obligation to speak of your king and that his kingdom has now come. Father, we thank you that we have nothing to be ashamed of and pray rather that we would share in Paul's confidence um, because he shares in uh, your confidence in the enthronement of your king. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, now is the time if you would like to make any questions or comments. The way it works is uh, you can just type them into the live chat um, and uh, what you can do is you put a queue in as will be demonstrated by Team Tech. That just lets everyone know there's a question coming and we won't move on until your question has come through. So you can take your time. Don't take too much time because we do need to, uh, we're not here all day, but you have time to ask your question. Um, if you're new to us, um, by all means, just listen in to see the kind of questions that people ask. Sometimes people ask a question and want to know a bit more about what a particular verse means, or if they want me to uh, say something again that I, I went through too quickly or further expand on, or maybe even to, to explore further an implication uh, for us here in Bradford in uh, 2nd of May 2021. Always takes a few minutes for questions to come through, so we'll just uh, wait patiently to see what, if anything, arrives. noticed actually while just waiting in the, the Bible there there's a very unhelpful um, split between verse 15 and verse 16 by that uh, heading uh, which um, has been added by our um, editors of the book but if you notice verse 16 it starts with for as it's giving the reason um, for why he's eager to preach in Rome so you kind of think as magnificent as 16 and 17 are they are really the um, conclusion of um, his argument thus far. And we'll find that in Paul. He's, there'll be lots of for, because, therefore, and it will call on us to not divide and conquer, but to actually follow his argument. 
Ooh. We have a question from Nikki. Please, could you explain verse 17a? Yes. So I take it, Nikki, you're thinking the bit where it says, for in it, as in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. That bit. Um, yes, well, I mean, in many ways, you have to come back next week. Because it doesn't say any more here. Um, so um, that's part of the answer, because that will be... Um, uh, I think, well, yeah, actually, I mean, so in terms of the argument that we're going to be following through, if you look at um, uh, this, this is a spoiler, but it's not really a spoiler because you know this is not a film, is it? In Romans three, he will get to the point where he says it's a conclusion of um, that section three ten. No one is righteous, not even one. So that's going to be his conclusion of fallen humanity, and then three twenty one. But now the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law through the law and the prophets. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So really what we're going to have in the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the problem that there is no one who is righteous. And then the solution, which starts at 321, where if no one is righteous, well, how we're going to look at... Um, uh, the revelation of the righteousness of God. So that's kind of where we're going. But okay, I'll say a little bit more because if you were reading the um, NIV, the NIV says, for in it the righteousness from God is revealed. Whereas the ESV says, from in it the righteousness of God is revealed. So the NIV has from, ESV has of, why are they allowed to do that? <clears throat> and the reason um, for that is because actually both um, are well within the, the meaning of the original Greek text. Um, so when we read righteousness of God, it can be righteousness from God. So it could mean either. Now let's just explore what those two are because you may think what's the difference. So righteousness from God could be this idea that um, uh, it's a righteousness that God gives to us. So we might think this idea of that through faith in Jesus Christ, he, he makes us righteous. It comes as a gift through the, um, um, through the personal work of Jesus. Okay, so that's, that, that's the focus there is more on our righteousness that we're given as a gift, which obviously is required, bearing in mind that in and of ourselves we're unrighteous. But there's also this idea of the righteousness of God seems to focus more on God's righteousness, about him being seen to be righteous. Now I think we tend to think less about that, a tendency might be think more about the righteousness, about our righteousness that he gives as a gift through faith in Jesus Christ. But when we get to Romans 3, uh, 21 and onwards, 
Paul is going to really want to answer a question that really hasn't been answered um, in the Bible thus far. And that is, how can God be both just and merciful? Okay, so the question of God's justice is one that hasn't been resolved until we get to the cross. Um, because for God to ha simply have mercy, well, it leaves unresolved. Well, what about the penalty for sin? God can't just overlook the penalty of sin. He said, Genesis um, 2, if you eat from a tree of knowledge of an evil, you'll surely die. God's given his word that the penalty of sin is death. It's unthinkable that God's going to go back on that word. And so part of our perspective on the cross is this idea that demonstrates God's justice. Because the penalty for sin is paid, not by believers, because they receive forgiveness, but by um, our king who dies in our place. So now you might think, which is it in verse 17? I mean, it, it doesn't say. Um, it could well be both. Um, in many ways, you know, I think Paul's saying, you know, uh, he understands his gospel. It uh, uh, centres around the revelation of the righteousness of God. But for that, he you know, he expects us to continue to read and, you know, to see the, the, the fullness and the richness of that, both from our perspective and also from God's perspective. Um I think it's tempting at this point, and I did think, you know, oh, you know, it's, it feels such good waters to be in. Do you think? Well, let's 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 then we just talk about verse seventeen for for the sermon. But I mean, in many ways, it only says what it says, and I think Paul is is really wanting to unpack that in the chapters that come. So I think there's probably a right discipline to allow Paul to do that, rather than at this point just kind of, you know, import everything into this one verse. So hopefully, Nikki, that helps. By all means, um, come back to me.